Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming. My name is Ian Port. I'm the music editor of SF Weekly, and I'm here with Kevin Arnold and Jordan Curland, who are the founders of Noise Pop, which is a production outfit and music festival here in San Francisco that has been around for 21 years now and has a fascinating relationship with technology, which is why we're going to be here talking about it today. So I'll let uh, Jordan and Kevin introduce themselves, and we'll get started. Hi, I'm Kevin. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to introduce myself much more than that. Hi, I'm I'm Jordan Kurland, and I've been working with Kevin on Noise Pop since the last 16 years. And I also own a management company here in San Francisco. We manage a number of bands, including Death Cab for Cutie, Postal Service, Head in the Heart, New Pornographers, She and Him, and a handful of others. And I'm very happy to be here today. With and all of you. And happy that you're all here today, <laughs> more importantly. All right, so let's start by just kind of getting an idea of the, the full breadth of noise pop as it is now, 21 years into its existence. There's the festival, there's Treasure Island. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. I think, you know, noise pop really, since Kevin stole my idea back in 1993, has, has evolved into, a, you know, a celebration of, you know, its emphasis is on music, but it's really, you know, celebration of independent music and culture. And, you know, as, you know, as, as, Ian, as you said, it's really relied heavily on technology through the years. You know, nowadays we produce two, you know, our, our thrust is on two events. One is the Noise Pop Festival, which is happening next week, actually, Tuesday through Sunday, and also the Treasure Island Music Festival, which we're entering our seventh year, and it runs out on Treasure Island as a, a two-day boutique music festival, as we call it. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I'd say Noise Pop as an event is is... You know, we try to sort of stay true, I think, to what it was originally, which is like a celebration of sort of local arts and culture. And it's a music festival, first and foremost, but it's also now, you know, art shows and film festival and and culture club, uh, sort of educational, behind-the-scenes type event, and, and a whole bunch of other things. But then the business of Noise Pop itself is... Uh, is encompasses Treasure Island and and a bunch of other events that um, that we put on and and uh, either annual events or, or seasonal events stuff like Noisette um, you know more or less for us it's about trying to to find a place in the local community to sort of participate on a year-round basis and keep a staff of really great people employed and and busy year-round so that we can have good good events for Treasure Island and Noise Pop. So Noise Pop, if I can speak as a journalist for a minute, is, is, has a very palpable influence on the indie music scene here in San Francisco, especially the, the indie rock scene. And I think it's interesting now looking at it and looking at the scope of the festival to go back and remember that this started in 1993 as a night of bands that you booked at, what was it? It was the, the Kennel Club, the Kennel Club yeah. which was now the Independent, right? Yep. Still a great room. <laughs> Still a great room. So how did that come about? Where did you, what made you decide to do that? Yeah, the first festival was was sort of last minute and unplanned and serendipitous in in its entirety. I was uh, it was a matter of I'd been promoting shows for a little while. I went to Cal and and really sort of started got my music industry and concert promotion sort of background at Superb Productions there, which is the on campus events group. And and then I started working for a small booking agency and booking some bands, and then I started going on tour. And so the first noise pop was really a matter of a promoter in town at the Kennel Club saying, "Hey, I've got a it was January 31st. He's like, I got a slow night at the end of January. Nobody tours during this time. Do you want to do something? And we've been talking about it for a year or two. And I'm like, yeah, sure. So I basically booked five of my favorite bands at the time. And 
And for me, this was like, it's funny because I didn't meet Jordan for six years later, but at the time, I think he was interning at a management company that booked, that managed Primus and Limbo no, Maniacs. No, no. I, no? Moved to, I moved here in 95. Okay, so then you worked for... Uh, management company. Yeah, that, yes. that did Primus and Limbo Maniacs and just, stuff like just that. Primus. <laughs> just Primus. Okay, just Primus. And yeah. the Melvins. Yeah, Charlie but they weren't a funk band at the time, were no, they? No. So I would say, like at the time in San Francisco, the reigning stuff was like this punk funk movement of of Primus and and Psychofunkopus. That was my favorite band name, and the Limbomaniacs. And I was very into this '80s American independent fueled and influenced music, like with Husker Du at its core roots and the Replacements and Soul Asylum and stuff right afterwards. So there were these bands in San Francisco that were influenced by that in a, in a bit of a loose scene. And Noise Pop was about bringing those together. And uh, the name, for me, described the music and, and was catchy. And uh, this was slightly post-grunge, post-Nirvana. So I was trying to sort of separate it from, it wasn't really grunge, I don't think. And so I was trying to sort of distinguish it from that and called it a festival so it would seem like more of a special event. And so you booked this festival, and and it went it went pretty well, right? Yeah, it was it was awesome. It, it, we had no idea what to expect. It was five dollars for five bands, and there I think we counted that there were eight hundred people through the room, and it's like a five hundred five fifty person room. But those were different owners, so they won't get in trouble for us talking about that, right? <laughs> but as I understand it, despite the fact that the first noise pop was a success and that the other early noise pops were a success, you were never completely sure that you were going to be able to pull it off for another year, right? Each year was a little bit uncertain? Yeah, I mean, there wasn't plans for a second when the first was done. It took, you know, months, and, and you know, I happened to live with a couple of the bands that, that or with one of, you know... One of the musicians, I guess, was a roommate of mine, and, and I lived with a bunch of musicians, and they were like, yeah, you should do it again. And I'm like, okay, I guess I, I wasn't really doing that much. I probably wasn't that busy the first year. And did it again, and then moved at the bottom of the hill and made it three nights. And it was a little bit of the same thing for the next year or two until I started to have a real job and, and get caught up in uh, commuting to Silicon Valley every day and stuff. So one of the interesting things about the early noise pop festivals, too, is you can go online and actually see the early noise pop websites, which I think we should probably do now because it gives you a good idea of what things were like back then. Yeah, we were very early adopters of technology. So this is the 1995 festival website. And as you can see, it's... I think we might have had a background color back then that we lost somewhere in the trying to archive this thing. And here's the 96... <laughs> That's a really nice design. <laughs> I think we turned the blinking off. So did you understand early on, you understood, it, it sounds like, that the internet and, and getting word about these shows out online was going to be an important thing for this project? I, I, we knew that it was like a new way to reach people, for sure. Otherwise, we, I don't think we would have bothered. Did we, I don't think we knew what it was, right? It was still, yeah, it's the World Wide Web. It's the internet. And... and like I was saying before, I, I was working at the time. My day job was when I was not on tour, tour managing, was working at a company that basically monitored TV and uh, and radio news. And so I was exposed very much to like, you know, every bit of technology news reporting in the early '90s, which stuck in my head and and made me you know obsess about computers for a while. And so it was it was all that 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 you know, if there's anywhere in the country or the world you'd think that you'd see an perhaps over important view, even though it was quite important. Of, of what you know, this technology could be, it would be here. So yeah, I was swept up in that for sure. And your day job early on, you were actually working in the Valley at Oracle, right? So I got the job at Oracle, I think, in 96, probably. So yes, the, the first few years, I was working 
at a place where we, like I said, we recorded news broadcasts and typed up summaries for them and sold them to corporations when they were mentioned. But yeah, I, I got a job. Like, this is how crazy it was. I knew nothing really about Unix or computers. I think I maybe took a, a little bit of computer courses in college, but I then got turned on to this whole world and was like, I'm going to learn about computers. And I was in an office and I basically taught myself into being sort of the local network guy, you know, the computer guy. And uh, Silicon Valley was hiring so fast, recruiters started calling me after, you know, I had about a half a year of experience and were like, do you want to come work at Oracle and run databases? And I was like, well, I don't know what that is, but yes, because they paid me twice as much as I was making at the time. So it was, uh, that was like a big impact of the, of the boom here locally. And uh, I, you know, grabbed onto that rocket and held on. So Jordan, tell us how you got involved with the festival and how you guys met up and that sort of thing. Back then when you were, when you were, <laughs> keep trying, <laughs> go. Back then when you were working at Oracle, I, I moved up here in 1995 to work for a management company. As, as Kevin said, you know, their biggest client at the time was the antithesis in a lot of ways to, well, I wouldn't say the antithesis, but really was, you know, what Kevin was responding to with the first noise pop, the, you know, a band called Primus, who was, was a big act and, you know, still are relatively big act. And, and I was working for um, a guy named Dave Lefkowitz who managed them and a number of other artists. And I, I was just out of college and I knew I wanted to be in the music business and I thought I wanted to be in management. So I started working there, just answering phones, um, running the, the Primus fan club, which at that point was still a mail order thing. There wasn't a web presence. And while I was there, you know, eventually started picking up a few of my own clients. One of my first, you know, signings was a band named Creeper Lagoon. Creeper Lagoon's guitar player was one of Kevin's old roommates, and he and I became, you know, started seeing each other around and becoming friends through that. We had met once prior to that in person when I interviewed him. I was also doing some freelance writing for the San Francisco Examiner back when it was the afternoon uh, newspaper, and uh, I did a piece on noise pop. Uh, cleverly titled Snap, Crackle, Noise Pop uh, back in 1997. I don't remember um, that, really. Uh, where, I, where I interviewed, <laughs> you don't. It was nominated for a Pulitzer. Um, I, uh, so I interviewed Kevin then, and you know we started seeing each other around, and then soon after, I started managing Creeper Lagoon, and we became friends, and you know, Kevin's big hook in the press every year, seemingly, was how was the last noise pop. So I... Um, I offered to help out because you know what I you know what I was able to do um, well he was well on his way be, to becoming an internet millionaire um, was to you know I was able to be on the phone with you know agents and managers and bands it was part of my job so I was able to integrate that into the fabric of what I was doing each day um, Kevin at that point was not really able to do anything until he got home from work each night um, so you know it it and it's and it's you know, so I was really able to help get in there and not only maintain but but grow the grow the reach of the festival. Yeah, I mean, I would say like Jordan, I'd still say you sort of saved a noise pop in a way because I was going insane. I couldn't I just couldn't deal with it? And uh, you know, there's well, we still maintain some pressure every year to figure out how to you know outdo ourselves a little bit or do something new. Back then, it was just a lot harder. So so Jordan's come on and it's the late '90s in San Francisco and noise pop has websites. Well, this is 96 here. Where's 97? 99, like this. 99 looks better. And notice that there's live streaming um, of noise pop shows in 1999, which some people were discussing on a panel this morning as if it was like a futuristic invention that will 
change the world. And here we're doing it in San Francisco in 1999. It is funny. There's a lot of businesses trying to bring you live streaming of concerts right now today. Yeah. So tell us, like, Noise Pop kind of rode this wave of the first big tech boom in San Francisco, which kind of peaked right around 1999. Um, and how did that influence the festival? I, th I think, you know, for, for me, I think... Was yeah, ninety nine was the first year that we sold sponsorship, and it was kind of by accident. There right? it is. Um, Ultimate band list. Yeah, I mean, noise pop as a business model is about as bad as can be in terms of. <laughs> you know, we're not like South by Southwest or CMJ where you're selling tons of badges at a really high price and et cetera, et cetera. We have a much different model. So, um, you know, I, I think we, you know. I sold a couple sponsorships that year and it blew our mind how much money we were getting. And it wasn't that much money. It was just the idea that, that wow, like ultimate band list wants to sponsor noise pop or good noise wants to sponsor noise pop. So, you know, that certainly had a big impact. And then when we went to Chicago in 2000, you know, which was right before the, you know, we got one good year in before the first bust, we made a lot of money selling sponsorship, you know, again, a lot of money by those terms, but that, that was a real big thing. And then also, you know, with Kevin's background in technology, he was able to, you know, really think about, you know, what our web presence was going to be like. I know it looks funny now. I'm, you know, seeing really how it was. <laughs> but, you know, just really thinking about, you know, how to integrate technology into what we were doing. Tiny telephone. Yeah, so this is a list of sponsors for uh, the 2000 Noise Pop, which is pretty pretty interesting. So uh, you guys expanded to Chicago in 2000s with the help of the kind of dot-com sponsorships. What happened after that? Oh, well, we went. We did two years in, I don't know if you want to answer this, but Go ahead. You know, we did two years in Chicago, and it was great. It was just for us, for our staff of the two of us and one part-time person who was also a part-time person in my management office, it was it was pretty intense. So, you know, like I said, in 2000, we were able to sell a lot of sponsorship for the festival in Chicago, and it made it worthwhile doing it. In 2001, unfortunately, we lost money because... Dot bomb. Yeah, dot bomb. And, you know, coupling that with the workload, um, you know, my management life was getting a little bit busier, thank God. Um, Kevin was, <laughs> Kevin had a new job, which, um, so we just, we, we kind of gave up on it. You know, and this was pre-Pitchfork Festival and, um, you know. If only we had stuck it out, man. Yeah, well, totally. I mean, it was, it was, it was, I grew up in the Chicago area and I, you know, recognized that there was a hole in the market, you know, for something like this. It's just, we weren't really in a place to keep it going. So I think one of the really interesting things about noise pop is going back and, and comparing where this kind of music was in, in the early 90s, in the late 90s, um, which was, I think you were selling earlier that a band selling 45,000 records on an indie label would have been a big deal, a huge deal. Yeah. And now we live in an era where, you know, the Arcade Fire has won the album of the year Grammy and, you know, Bonnie Bear or Bonnie Bear, if you want to call him that, stood up in front of the microphone at the Grammy Awards and, and got a nation of teenagers on Twitter asking who he was, but but he was still there at the Grammy Awards. And so indie music is in a different space now. It's it's a different, it, it, it has uh, come a long way since you guys started this festival. There wasn't even, indie, indie wasn't a word when we started the festival, so that's, that's a strange thing to think about too to me. 
Yeah, and I think with this you know question in particular, and I think it also, you know, looking at the arc of our respective, you know, I always say like you know, noise pop is it's a hobby in a lot of ways. I mean, it's it's not really. You know, we take it very seriously. We have a staff um, that works very hard. Most of whom make up this audience. Yeah. (laughs) No, we have a staff that works very hard. And, but, you know, for both of us, both Kevin and I have, you know, day jobs that consume most of our time. And, you know, it's, it is largely tied to the, the rise of the independent music community and how the internet has enabled that rise. I mean, for, you know, you know, even going back to your point of, you know, back in, you know, 1998, I remember when Modest Mouse Lonesome Crowd West was, you know, 44,000 copies sold, selling 400 records a week. It seemed, that seemed totally unattainable, you know, to be managing band, you know, to think of an indie rock band on an independent label selling those type of numbers. I mean, Sebado Bake Sale, you know, sold 100,000 records and, you know, Sunny Day Real Estate sold 100,000 records. And those were, those were huge, huge, I mean, they're still big numbers. There's still very few indie rock bands that sell 100,000 records. But the ceiling got totally blown off of that, of that, you know, when people really started, you know, I mean, there, there were a lot of different factors. It was the iTunes store launching. It was the pitchfork effect. It was, you know, the OC, whatever it was, it just, things really started to converge where independent bands and labels and artists all of a sudden had a reach. And it certainly wasn't a level playing field in terms of finances and people power with major labels, but you know, back in, you know, the mid-90s, the times Kevin started Noise Pop, even the time I started working on Noise Pop, you know, you would hear about a band like, you know, let's say the, you know, a band, just trying to think of an, you know, example from that area, you know, whether it's Codeine or Low or whoever, it was, it was reading the Weekly, it was reading the Guardian, it was listening to Calax, KOSF, it was, you know, maybe the, the small part of Spin Magazine that was dedicated to covering independent music, it was, a friend calling or emailing and saying, hey, I saw this awesome band at the Empty Bottle in Chicago. You should see if they're coming to San Francisco. You know, you know, fast forward to 2002, 2003, you know, you get best new music on Pitchfork. You know, hundreds of thousands of people have the opportunity to see it. Well, millions have the opportunity to see it, but let's say hundreds of thousands of people are reading about it. They're, you know, they have a chance to stream a song and then immediately go to the artist's website or go buy, buy the album, buy a track, see when they're going on tour. It's, it's, it's completely altered the dynamic. Now, the flip side of that, of course, is, you know, artists have suffered on, you know, in terms of album sales. You know, that's just a reality of it. But I think in this community that we're talking about, it it's really has given a much longer career arc for, for many, many acts that would never have been able to on Saddle Creek Records, or Barsook Records, or Sub Pop Records, sell, sell the amount of... of sell the amount of records that they have. So was in, uh, it was 2007 when you started the Treasure Island Music Festival, is that right? Uh, or 2006? Uh, no, seven. Yeah. seven. Did you start Treasure Island kind of as a reaction or, or sort of with the awareness of how the indie music scene had grown? Or what was the impetus behind, behind that? Well, I mean, on one hand, we're always... You know, I think like part of our story is we've got still drawers full and pockets full of different plans and dreams that we want to try and realize someday, right? We're not short on ideas. Um, and so we'd been wanting to create another larger scale event, something that could anchor the rest of the business and, and be good for us as well as like do something bigger. Um, and it was a matter of, you know, having an idea about the side and the name and all this other stuff to come together. Um, 
it was a factor of it being bigger and and becoming more of a thing on its own that we could actually maybe support something there. But at the same time, we're us trying to uh, you know, diversify and um, do a day that's a little bit more electronic focused and stuff. That it was it was a bit of like the 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 way that times were changing in the music scene and music community and and, and within whatever you know the microcosm and the noise pop exists in too. And I think you know the the impetus with Treasure Island. You know, we had been talking about for a long time wanting to do an outdoor event, looking at what other cities had to offer and looking at what, what you know, San Francisco or the Bay Area didn't offer. And the model of it was really to take, you know, the inexpensive, intimate setting that we try to provide for noise popgoers each year and put that in an outdoor space. We looked around for a couple of years just scouting different, different festival sites or potential festival sites. Um, and we're surprised to see that it was even a possibility to, to do something on Treasure Island because it seemed like such an awesome spot for to, you know, spend a day watching music. I mean, it definitely comes with its own challenges, a lot of them, but it, it you know, that, that was really it. And we just wanted to, you know, at the time we launched it, we were, you know, outside lands didn't exist. Um, I think it was in the works, but it, it hadn't launched yet. And we really felt like, an outdoor festival was something that the Bay Area needed, you know, and it, it also felt like something that our community really needed. The formula of, you know, one day being electronic or DJ or dance oriented and one day being indie rock oriented was, was, was a happy accident, you know, just in terms of what we were able to confirm that first year. But, um, you know, it seems to, it seems to really, it seems but that to the size of the festival, the two stage format or all mm -hmm. things that, you know, we sort of consciously felt like, uh, would be a better reflection, a better experience for the type of, uh, for our audience and the type of things that we wanted to see. Yeah, and Noise Pop, up until 99 or 2000, we didn't have, it was always like a boasting, like we don't have competing shows. <laughs> so, um, again, going back to that horrible business model, but, um, you know, it was, it's nice to be able to do that Treasure Island where if you go in this, in this time of so many distractions and so many different things pulling you in different directions that you can go, you know, when you go to Treasure Island, it's, you know, one band's on this stage now, and then they end, and the other band's on that stage. And of course, there's other things to do um, on the festival grounds. But as far as seeing music, there's really only you know, <laughs> there's only one thing to focus your attention on at a time. Yeah, like the Noise Pop Festival next week is like my own worst nightmare, honestly, as far as like trying to figure out what to go see shows. And and yeah, I do think Treasure Island was a reaction to that, and it was a hard thing. I mean, we we first did multiple conflicting shows in Chicago because like. I didn't want to do it here first. I wanted a precedent in another city to see how it went. <laughs> and now it's still hard to pick shows to go to personally every year. So let's turn things back to technology for um, a minute. And um, I want to talk about IOTA because this is a company that you started around 2000, 2000 2003. And it, it, its founding was really fortuitously tied with the rise of iTunes and, and the whole um, online music licensing and, and MP3 sales thing. So can you give us a little primer on that and how that went? Yeah, well, you know, I guess thinking back on it now, it was one of those things where you're just like, oh, this is the thing that I was sort of made to do at the time. I'd been working at, at Listen.com. So like after after getting my break and going to work for Oracle and, you know, I think of that as sort of like Silicon Valley boot camp, it was, it, was, uh, it was great. I learned a ton, but I did not enjoy going down there and working in, you know, these big buildings and stuff. So coming back to Listen was a great thing. And... And I had the idea for IOTA when working there, mostly as a, a 
you know, it's not to talk smack about my ex-employer and, and like I love Rhapsody and, and Listen was great for me. But at the time we were building this music service and it was everybody was super excited and inspired. We're going to build the Celestial Jukebox. We're going to have any song you can listen to almost. We're almost there. Right. Almost like Spotify or RDO Maga or Rhapsody and is today. Um, and we were psyched about it. And so I was I'm, I was a database guy at the time and I was building the systems for managing all this content. Um, watching them try and sign labels and bring it on board, doing all the accounting and the royalty payment systems for this. And as we were trying to sign labels without going too much into like the business market dynamics at the time, we were trying to sign indie labels because the majors wouldn't play. And, um, and some of these labels were really tiny labels that I was friends or fans of. And then some of these labels were very big indie labels like, you know, Koch Records, which is no longer around under that name, but as an example. And even the, the dynamics, first of all, their ability to sign labels and the labels to understand what the service was, was hard. They didn't get each other and communicate well. And secondly, as I was, you know, firsthand building these royalty systems, it was clear that there was some, some mismatch between the rates that some of the big labels were getting and some of the small labels. And so for me, it was like, oh, somebody needs to bring these guys together and help them navigate this new business landscape as well as get them better rates. And so that was the main motivation. Um, it took me, you know, two years to get laid off to where I actually went and started the business um, because at that point in time, I don't, you know, I wasn't about to leave a, a sweet technology job in a, in a digital music company. Um, but yeah, that's the, you know, it was really early times. It was, you know, f fortuitously like three months before iTunes launched that, uh, that um, I got laid off and started working on the business and I had no, you know, at the time I thought I'd start something on the side and go get another job and try and grow it slowly. Um, but, you know, really 2003 was the year that everything started to happen in the marketplace, even though, you know, eMusic and Rhapsody have been around since 99 or 98. Wow, okay. So what happened with IOTA then after that? I mean, it kind of grew into this uh, a major force, didn't it? Yeah, we, um, we eventually grew to, to, be one of the leading companies doing digital distribution in the marketplace, represented um, many thousand record labels, um, almost uh, three million tracks of music, I guess, at the time uh, that that I left last year. And so eventually we uh, we grew up and, you know, we we're very much a, a bootstrap sort of organically built company. Um, we had a, a little bit of funding, not from venture capital, uh, but from angels and friends and family. And we were able to go out and, and run an operating business and grow organically. Uh, and it took a while, I think, for the industry to realize that we were real and not like a fad. Um, and that for the labels, I think, to the majors and the major distributors to realize that um, that maybe we had some merit in the business and, and market we were working. Um, and then recognize that, right? And so uh, eventually, yeah, we uh, did a partnership with, with Sony Music um, in 2009. And... Uh, and then uh, last year, the company was merged in with The Orchard, which is now also uh, part of the Sony organization, but a, a very, very large digital distributor uh, in the business. So, um, yeah, I think that us and, you know, it was an interesting competitive space, lots of local companies in this business, uh, and then companies like The Orchard, CD Baby, everybody trying to sort of figure out how, how to do this job and how to, you know, help these... Uh, help these labels and artists make money, really, which is what it was all about. You know, we're all competing with each other, but at the same time, I think we all had a pretty good uh, common goal in mind. So I'm going to put up the questions in a minute, but I want to ask, um, what's what's in the future for Noise Pop? Musically, technologically, you're in your 21st year now. What can we expect down the road? I mean, I, I <clears throat> honestly, I love, I mean, I don't know how many people here are familiar with the festival, but 
you know, during the the, the Q and A process, if if you have any thoughts or ideas, ideas. for us. But <laughs> I thought you guys had ideas. <laughs> yeah, we do have ideas. No, we do. But you know, it's always good to hear feedback. Um, you know, I think for us, it's you know, it is a it's a constant. Um, challenge to figure out how we want to keep it new, you know, how to keep it new and fresh after after this many years. And I think that will be, um, I don't know, after the festival dies down this year, we're going we're gonna to talk about some ideas that we've been kicking around a little bit, um, you know, for the future. But it's, it's really just nice that the Bay Area music community and the independent music community still really respond to what we do, you know, and, um, and it, it makes it, you know, not to sound all like, you know, hokey, but it does make it worthwhile for for us to spend our time doing it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think we're we are, we are super busy. I think and always operating a little bit at our limits. But we also, you know, always find a way to add something new and rise to the challenge. The team we have um, that we have now that has been sort of, you know, it's always morphing a little bit, but more or less in place for the last five or six years uh, is is great and. Um, be a real bummer to have to let them go after this year's <laughs> festival. Sorry, guys. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, but yes. you know, for it, so there's there there's no shortage of ideas and energy and uh, and and creativity coming out of it. So for us, it's just about what we can feasibly pull off like, within the financial constraints we've got. And um, and yeah, we'll have a we'll have a busy year and and many new things to come. I mean, it's not like we we haven't done anything. We just launched a. Last year, uh, another business within Noise Pop that's that's run by the team there as well called Do Four One Five, and hopefully, you guys have maybe checked out what's going on in San Francisco via that website too. Yeah, and also I think too, you know, a big part of what we look for in Noise Pop is to see, you know, what what, you know, in the same way that we started Treasure Island, the same way Kevin started Noise Pop back in '93, is really examining the landscape of what's going on here and what's missing, you know, um, you know, what's missing culturally, and you know, what are other, you know, what's happening in other other cities that we should be looking at doing here all right thanks guys i'm gonna open up to uh to questions now anyone out there want to ask founders of noise pop anything don't all raise your hands at once all right <laughs> yeah okay so the question is can noise pop emphasize film more yeah <laughs> i mean i i think like we, we've we've thought about that very thing many times here what i would say is that san francisco has a pretty damn robust film festival community and cycle so it's hard to figure out how to fit in between between the independent film fest, the Asian film festivals. Yeah, well, no, that's what we would do, the intersection of, of music and film. So then the question is, is there enough, is there enough content out there? I, I would also argue that, that there is, but maybe it's right on the edge. For us, it's... Um, no, I think there... Yeah, it's something we've thought a lot about. I think there is... No, I, th I think it's, it's, it's definitely one of the, one of the things that we've, ex we've actually not just talked about, but but explored, and I think it is, you know, it's still on the strike list of things that we might do before Noise Pop reaches 40. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's a, it's a space you guys could rule. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you very much for, what, am I not talking to the microphone most of the time? I can't. Most of the time. Okay, sorry. <laughs> you. So the, the question is the strength of their curation and, and how do you bring that to people outside of the, the February festival and the Treasure Island festival? Um, we're just so forward thinking that <laughs> we're kind of like, no, I mean, I think, you know, curator, I mean, I really do. It's funny. I don't, you know, since I'm a manager by day, you know, I never really think about myself as a promoter 
even though we are really promoters because we promote events and that's what promoters do. But I think that the curatorial pro I really do think of us as curators, not so much as promoters, you know, and, um, you know, obviously, you know, as we get <clears throat> older, maybe we're not as, you know, as knowledgeable or as in touch with exactly what's going on out there. Speak for yourself. Yeah, of course. I know. <laughs> Kevin would still be booking the fastbacks if it was up to him. <laughs> but, um, you know, so we do have a great staff that we rely heavily on. And we also, you know, we, we dialogue, you know, with the clubs and booking agents to see what's going on. But I don't really remember what the question was initially. But Yeah, okay, I'll answer this one. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's interesting to think about the way that we have heard about music changes, right, which is also very much technology-driven and impacted. Um, and I'd say, and I've said this many times around Discovery, it's largely still the same thing. It's word of mouth. It just travels a ton faster and, and through many more channels than it used to. And so then it's like a filtering problem, and you're overwhelmed with stuff. So then it's like whatever gets repeated most often and rises to the top, basically. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, at the same time, I mean, I'm sure I am one of the more in tune or plugged in or with it uh, 40-somethings in the world. But, uh, you know, certainly compared to the other parents at my kids' schools, I feel hip. Not when I go to noise pop shows. But, uh, you know, it's, yeah, we have, like, we're subjected to a ton of good music. And, and us and our friends and our staff and team all sort of help filter that stuff up and, and, uh, and bubble it up. So throughout the year and outside of the other events, well, we try and continue that trend for the most part. And we're... Like any other brand, you know, uh, trying to keep ourselves in, in people's minds throughout the year. We, you know, we do do regular events on on monthly basis and and feature artists that we like, and you know, try and uh, and uh, keep our newsletter readers happy and not uh, annoyed. Other questions out there? Yeah, in the back there. Yeah. Question is: Have they ever thought about doing a noise pop on the road type thing? The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> Keep coming. You guys have an idea. We have not. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, we've also no, thought we, a lot about that. We have, and we've we've even budgeted that. You know, again, it's something that we have explored a little bit. It's it's also on the strike list of things to. You know, it is one thing that. You know, for us, really, when we launched Treasure Island, um, here's a long version of your question. So, in 2006, we actually took some money from an investor, a small amount of money from an investor, and hired a staff, which is something we had never had. Before that, it had always been Kevin and myself and a part-time person usually working out of my management office, working on the festival. So to call it a skeleton crew was sort of an overstatement. Um, we, um, you know, in 2006, we, we, we hired a staff, small staff, and one of the first things we did, other than expanding the reach of what Noise Pop was, is go out and launch Treasure Island. And the first couple of years of Treasure Island, we lost money. Um, and then we started to do okay with it. And it's always been our intention. Once we really felt like Treasure Island was on solid ground, we kind of, we'd really dive into what our next major, you know, initiative was going to be. And we're in the process of figuring that out, you know, and, and both, you know, the film festival and noise pop on tour are two of the things that we, we, we are, are in the hopper for discussion. So the question is, what's the uh, what's the end goal? What's the what's the ultimate goal of Noise Pop? I mean, and what makes a successful one? And what makes a successful one? I think that 
I mean, we don't want to be South by Southwest or CMJ. We do want to be more extensive than we are. We want to offer more than what we're doing. I think it's important. I mean, to be totally frank, after 21 years, you know, it gets a little bit, you know, it needs some tweaking, you know, I think just for to keep us interested, too. But, you know, what made it successful is, you know, if people have a good experience. You know, we made a, we made a conscious decision this year to scale it back a little bit, coming off the 20th anniversary. You know, we're not doing nearly as many, you know, bigger shows or bigger shows by noise pop standards. It's a lot of small club shows, developing artists, you know, because we, we wanted to get back to our roots a little bit. And we also wanted to give our, our, ourselves and our staff a little bit of a break to, to think about the future and to really discuss ideas. Um, but I think a success for me is, um, is, you know, yeah, people, people enjoying it, getting good feedback. You know, obviously there's a financial side of it, which is, you know, selling enough sponsorships so we cover our costs and selling tickets and, and things of that nature. But, um, you know, it's, it's mostly, it's, it is about the overall experience. It's kind of, there isn't really a measuring stick to say other than we know when it's working and when it's not. Yeah, know? I mean, it's good when the staff doesn't quit at the end of the festival. Yeah. It's good and we don't lose a lot of money. Yeah. But it is, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I agree with you. Um, all right, great. Well, I think we have time for maybe one more question real quick, and then and, and we're going to have to cut it off. I th I think so your question is about geography of noise pop versus South by Southwest, where South by Southwest is pretty concentrated and noise pop is more spread out around the city. Which is a really good point. I mean, I think that's just how the city is. I do think that, again, I mean, all everyone's questions about noise pop have been really great and informative because it's all stuff we talk. I mean, we talked about centralization this morning in our staff meeting. You know, it would be really nice to figure out a way to centralize it more, even if it's not everything happening in one place, but kind of having more of it, you know, tilted into one space. And I think that's becoming more and more possible each year when you look at where new venues are popping up. I mean, you know, now you've got, you know, you've got a couple of smaller venues in the mission that didn't exist a few years ago in brick and mortar in, in the cathedral and, you know, public works. And, you know, sometime in the next year, I believe that movie theater is opening up, another movie theater is opening up. Um, you know, we try to be as inclusive as possible with clubs. You know, we like working with as many clubs, so I don't think we would ever say, noise pop's only going to happen in the mission, but I think you might see a higher concentration in a part of town. Um, but it, it is just geography. I mean, but but if you look at South by Southwest, obviously 6th Street is where, or right around 6th Street is where almost everything happens, but things are moving on the other side of the freeway. Things are moving further uptown in Austin, you know. And that's by virtue of the fact that it's gotten so fucking ginormous, but... It just, it's not as centralized as it once was. Yeah, I mean, plus San Francisco's, I, you know, I don't know. I, as much as I don't like uh, having to drive and park in between shows, and, and which is why we're very happy to have Uber as a sponsor this year. So thank you guys, <laughs> but, which is a great solution to that problem. You know, it's also part of what San Francisco is, and I sort of dig it that like Bimbo's is all the way out at the. What's, you know, was I supposed to wait and use my Uber credits during the festival? <laughs> you just earned some more. Yeah. All right, and we've one, one more quick question. Anyone? All right, I think we're going to cut it off there. Thank you guys, everyone, for coming. Really appreciate it, and have fun.